Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 35, Eliza Skinner. Eliza Skinner uh, is a stand-up comedian and a writer, joke writer, has been a joke writer for, uh, God damn it, Joan Rivers, that's right, Joan Rivers, and most recently was on Totally Biased with Kamau Bell, was a joke writer on that show, skit writer, and also a performer, she did like correspondent bits on there, and alas, uh, at the time of me recording this and posting it, that show had been canceled, which is a drag, so like if there are people out there listening to Doug that show, maybe you guys should write in and get it back like people did with Futurama, but Eliza's, uh, you know, she's bouncing back and she's going back to LA, she was living in New York doing that and being bi-coastal. And she's heading back to L.A. to keep on rolling and writing and performing and all of that. So, um, you know, I, I was interested in talking to Liza because I, I have a renewed interest in comedy. I've always had a, a, a strange, not always, I used to love comedy, just plain love it, laugh at it, have a good time. But uh, somewhere around my, uh, I don't know, 30s, I started to take myself really seriously and take life really seriously and... I found it really hard to laugh at the things that it seemed like most comedians wanted me to laugh at, and I got really uncomfortable with it, and I don't know what that's about. Like, I just couldn't, like, scrolling through Netflix, I just couldn't even pick a stand-up comedy thing to watch. And uh, then I started listening to Mark Maron's show, and I realized that, well, all of these people, men and women, are just as serious, but they're just choosing to do something different with it and they don't all spend all their time ridiculing and mocking other people for laughs you know that's there's a wide variety of comedy and um yet i'd kind of forgotten that it's just like music and any other kind of art there are people that you know swing for the cheap seats and there there are people that are reaching for something you know really challenging pushing the edge and really have something to say and uh you know so i'm i'm fascinated by that i'm interested and um, Liza is the, I mean, one of the few people I have any kind of connection to that's uh, done this sort of thing, especially on a on a big scale. So I wanted to talk to her. I feel, and perhaps you can judge for yourself, of course you can judge for yourself, that some moments of this conversation got away from me and like some buried nugget of ire I have towards things in general kind of came out. I got defensive. Um, but I, I think that makes for great, a great podcast. It's interesting. I think I would personally like to know more about Liza in an hour and a half. I don't feel like I got as much out of her as I'd like. So maybe I'll have to have her back on. Um, but I encourage you to check her out. Her name is Liza Skinner. She's on Facebook. Um, you do a Google search, you'll find her. Um, she's out there. She's from Churchill. She's from Richmond, Virginia. She's the younger sister of a girl that I went to elementary school with. Her parents still live in Churchill. She is a Richmond, Richmond, Richmond girl. And she's up there, uh, you know, still pushing uh, for her dream. And uh, I really respect her. I, I think that's the thing is, I, I, of course, I respect everyone that I've ever had on this podcast. But I think Eliza is in a Algonquin round table or something, if you will. How much more pretentious can you get than that? Um, that I'm not in, and I think on some level, I, uh, you know, some of my insecurities were coming out as I was talking to her about it because I, I really do like just 
admire and respect the fact that she's out there doing what she's doing. And she's just, you know, it seems like such hard work and so vulnerable to be trying to get right jokes and, you know, stand up in front of people and tell jokes and, you know, to apply your trade amongst all of the egos and assholes and competitive fuckwads and people that I just, I can't deal with anymore. I, I had my taste in New York and the L.A. area. I don't want any part of it. Nothing is worth it to me to try to fucking, you know, just go toe-to-toe with people who are kind of do and say anything for their own career. I really fucking want no part of that. But I admire the fuck out of somebody who can find a place in it. And something that I realized after we turned off the mics is this issue of communication. That, you know, there we have these broad categories like you're either really true to yourself or you're a sellout or something and somewhere in between there is the idea of communicating and recognizing that your audience you know as a writer they talk about your audience like who's reading this as a comedian obviously you're performing for an audience and the assumption often is that you're you will just do whatever it takes for that audience but but really there's this incredibly fine line to walk that i think lies is walking of if your purpose is to communicate whether you're writing whether you're um speaking to your community, you're, you're uh, talking to a customer where you work, uh, you're talking to a coworker where you work, uh, whatever it is you're doing, to some degree, if you want to communicate and you want to be understood, you have to modify some aspect of your raw self, your raw nature. And I think that ultimately is what uh, she's doing and, you know, what most perf- a lot of performers are doing. And it's really I, I tend to, you know, because of the kind of person I am, I think of it as being all about ego. But it's not. It's like I got something to say. I want to say it, but I want it to say it in a way that other people will get it. And the more that we get each other, the more we understand about ourselves. And communication is a beautiful thing. And we talk a lot about the potential for, you know, connecting with people through communication. So, I, uh, yeah, this is what I do instead of editing is I explain everything away. So I hope you dig it. On to Eliza. Louder. I can be louder. Yeah, are you going to remember to talk that loud? No. I'm, I'm right. engaging my diaphragm at this volume. I'm going to turn. <laughs> we can't have that. <laughs> I'm going to turn up the master and then we'll crank. You probably need some more bass. Yeah. I've always felt that. More bass in your voice. Yeah. Get that bass out of your voice. I would love more bass in my voice. Just like a real commanding, booming. So how how long has it been? We're rolling. Oh, exciting. Uh-huh. Went into it. Went right into it. <laughs> I steal so much shit from Mark Marin, just like the uh, started rolling while people uh-huh. still think they're yeah. getting comfortable. And yeah. Because it should be a nice little flow. Sure. Instead of like bang the on air sign mm-hmm. comes on. And instant formality. I can sip into the mic, too. Uh-huh. And pow. Pow, yeah. <laughs> I unashamedly, you know, rip that off because I'm never going to get those kinds of, you know, I'm not going to have that kind of circulation. And oh, so you don't think anyone's going to be like, oh, wait a minute. I Is know that what you mean? Knows. Yeah. And, and anyway, that's what comedians do anyway, right? Steal. <laughs> We're not supposed to. We get really mad when people... Uh, when we find someone who's stealing it, because that's all your whole product is your thoughts. Right. But something like that, that's an homage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want a little bit of the shine mm-hmm. from him, too, as a neurotic, you know, um, If talker. his neuroses is shine, he is shiny. Well, the, fu- <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing, I hadn't heard of him until he was probably around 300 
of those things or maybe 200 and but I had a roommate that listened to podcasts religiously and this roommate was forced to listen to me you know just he was it? he was the guy my go-to mm-hmm. guy for like anything I needed to talk about or just was like whatever and he was like one time he was just like you got to listen to this <laughs> guy i mean this podcast mark Mark maron because he says stuff and then i come home and you say that you know so it's eerie yeah yeah not the good stuff not the funny (laughs) stuff just the insecure neurotic crazy yeah do you feel like you're are you apologizing a lot on the show to uh to people that you have wronged in the past i don't have to do that (laughs) that's good i I mean a mainstay of his yeah i haven't had anybody on yet that i've had one of those we good yeah we good (laughs) Now, uh, you and I only know each other from Churchill, really. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And you are what? Like, you're good four or five years younger than me. I oh, think. I Do think we want to talk about age? Well, I mean, I should. I, I like to keep my <laughs> mind kind of nebulous, mm-hmm. but I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more than that. Because you that, were yeah. like in my sister's generation. Yeah. And I was such, I was such a so little kid. So we're in different generations? Yeah. Well, I mean, Churchill kid generations, uh-huh. I would say. Yeah. Like, um,. But I, uh, I, yeah, I was such a little kid. I remember just n- not knowing what was going on with you right. and Staples and Farley and your sister. And you guys were all just the cool older kids. Yeah. It's weird how people who aren't that cool look cool. Just <laughs> oh, man. You guys <laughs> look like the breakfast club to yeah. me. Like me and, and I guess like Willow Seals and Anna Smith, like they were more my age group. We were mm-hmm. like, those guys are the cool ones. That's, well, that, yeah, that might be like 10 years. Yeah. I think. So we might be getting close to a generation. Yeah. You know, Emily was the uh, first girl I ever kissed. Really? Mm-hmm. Weird. Mm-hmm. But it was a truth or dare type, uh, situation i don't think it was like one of uh, you know particularly romantic i don't know anything moment. like that about my sister really oh yeah no no she was off doing acting stuff so yeah she didn't she didn't share any kind of gruesome details of her mm, that of is her was gruesome it was too, that was like <laughs> 10 i think and uh i think i involved her laughing so hard that she spit <laughs> like you know it was one of the, it was like a spit take kiss yeah so it was a real prideful moment for <laughs> for you yeah she I'm so keep sorry. a straight face <laughs> yeah in the old bellevue in the back of bellevue oh yeah i that was the that's the elementary school across the street from uh-huh. me did you go there no no but i remember one time i it was the night before like i don't know president's day martin luther king columbus day one of those like monday holidays mm-hmm. and i was looking out my window and i saw teenagers walk up the street and hang out in front of bellevue and then one of them went behind the bushes and took a shit can i say took a shit oh yeah okay and took a shit and they were like laughing like screaming having a great time i was probably like 10 years old and they left and the next morning i went out and looked behind the bushes and i saw the the shit and i was like ah i hope this happens every weekend <laughs> i'm like in a movie and uh it never did happen again it's the over the but chaos like, element of it yeah and it was the one time that like where i lived felt cool because again like when you're a little mm-hmm. kid like teenagers hanging out that's just churchill did wasn't you know it's pretty cool now but it wasn't uh it wasn't cool to live there no coming up not at all and people don't believe that People are like, oh yeah, sure. This or or if I take people home and they'll drive through our neighborhood and be like, well, this is amazing. Like it was not amazing. Half mm-hmm. of these houses did not have porches. Right. Uh, none of my friends would come over and play. Like maybe one out of ten kids at my school, at whatever school I was going to, would 
would be allowed to come to my neighborhood. Yeah, it was an issue of their parents were mm-hmm. not Yeah, I had yeah. the same thing. Gunshots yeah. at night. Mm-hmm. Like, just hear that on the radio. You're going to get a brick through your car window. Oh, mm-hmm. all that's it. we couldn't park behind our house because mm-hmm. you would just definitely get a brick through your mm-hmm. window. And you couldn't put a car stereo in. No. If no, you no. messed around and put any kind of a radio in there, you left the doors unlocked because it would be more expensive to replace the glass mm-hmm. than the stereo. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even put change in there. Nothing. So you, Emily was, I remember she was very early on and very intensely into like spark and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You weren't, were you doing that? Or? I did all that stuff, but I kind of like flopped around through it. Like, as you said, yeah, she was very intense with stuff. Uh, but I would kind of go in and out and I always liked, I always liked comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really know that that was a, a path for jobs or careers yeah i mean i still don't know if it is but um (laughs) but uh so i would it is it's just like what you're experiencing (laughs) with it right (laughs) um i mean i've i've taught comedy but yeah uh it's but so i would do like a little theater a little dance a little whatever but just be the silly one in all my classes Mm -hmm. which would entertain all the teachers and other students but not really rocket me to the head of Mm -hmm. any one practice Mm -hmm. Just clowning around all the time. So when did it become? Well, first of all, who? What was the comedy that you liked at that point? Or um, well, I grew up on? on a lot of British stuff like Monty Python mm-hmm. and The Young Ones, um, French and Saunders, and then I mean, is that because your father's yeah. BBC connection? He worked for the BBC. He did right? work for the BBC a little bit mm-hmm. um, when he was very young, and then most of my childhood he was working for PBS here, which was actually mm-hmm. the channel that would play Show whatever was BBC yeah, yeah, so. yeah. masterpiece theater and all. yeah mm-hmm. but even some um Monty Python I think yeah and kids. Faulty Towers mm-hmm. and stuff like that yeah 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 yeah. so so I was doing uh, uh, I was into all that stuff um I really liked Fozzie Bear mm-hmm. as a comedian was not aware that he was a bad comedian <laughs> just he got to get on stage and tell jokes right and, and indicate it was time to laugh and I was like ah that seems like a good time mm-hmm. um and uh yeah I I I would make up little sketches and funny stories and stuff. So, and then when, when did that become like, I'm going to, you became aware that there was like an educational Mm -hmm. path. I I see pictures of you doing improv and stuff like Uh that. Did you go to like one of those? Well, I started doing improv in college. I just randomly fell into it because I, um, one of my housemates wanted to audition for the improv troupe on our campus Mm -hmm. and I didn't I had never seen their shows but I was like oh that seems fun and then out of an audition they had an annual audition of about 200 people and out of like that those 200 people me and my housemate got cast and so I was like oh I guess maybe I'm good at this so I suddenly got really into improv wanted to learn everything I could drove myself to a, a festival like in Austin and just took myself and uh, then I graduated. And what from were you in school for when that <laughs> happened? For, I was in, I was studying, I forgot the exact name of my degree. It's like media arts and design, basically mm-hmm. watching TV. <laughs> I got a degree in watching TV, which I am still great at. I can do it for hours. Um, and was there writing involved in? Yeah, you would uh, watch, like, I, I remember writing papers on, uh, on Homer Simpson and, and the fall of the male in, in, um, sitcoms. Oh, yeah, this is what's become of the dad. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, uh-huh. that kind of stuff. And, uh, Ward Cleaver to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they mm-hmm. became idiots mm-hmm. to Raymond. Um, so after school, I decided I wanted to be a, uh, a talent agent, and that was the worst four months of my life. It was a totally thankless, 
awful job, a lot of crying. I also might have just been like, this is what the real world is? Oh, no. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and why, so I stopped doing that. And then I was just living in New York and had no idea what to do with myself. And was like, well, I can't. This is a really expensive city. Is that to, where you went to school? Was New no, York, this was after I graduated. I moved uh-huh. up there to, to pursue talent agenting. You did that agenting. thing that we do. We just yeah. go from Richmond to New York. Yeah, because the same side of the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's I've been there before. Away. It's Why close. Not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's you, cool. And you know people who live there. Mm-hmm. Like Because Richmond, I mean, New York is that city like the teenagers were when you're a kid. Like Richmond mm-hmm. is like the eternally like uncool kid looking at New York on oh, which uh, yeah exactly so if you have real aspirations of being cool you just move there to be cool yeah a lot of times. yeah and at the time at least you could walk down the street and run into other people <coughs> from Richmond um, yes there there was like uh, enough people there that you you could you didn't go too long without feeling some, some somebody sort of said home. that there should be a, a portion of Manhattan called <laughs> Little, Little Richmond. Richmond. Yeah, yeah, you could probably, especially now, you could have a timeshare there mm-hmm. where people just go <laughs> up for a little while and come back and back. Yeah, um, I know. <clears throat> I have a lot of Richmond friends who are very sad and, and miss New York, and I'm like, you guys just got out in time. Mm-hmm. You stay there longer, then you're like, this place is the worst. When did you move there? Uh, I moved there like 2000. I was there from '94 to '98. And I feel like I got out right before. I mean, like the point that I left, it was like one year after Giuliani decided that he was actually going to enforce the law down mm-hmm. in the East Village. With the no dancing. Well, that was that was already happening. Mm-hmm. And I used my job. I worked for a club, and my job was to keep basically to keep people from dancing in there. There's all this quality <laughs> so, of life it's bullshit. It's so crazy. It's like like footloose shit. Mm-hmm. Like it's just a technicality so that they could take over what the real estate they wanted to take over. So like this element, it's just like, you know, what's ironic to me is that I would have stayed in Richmond if we still had gray street, like it was back in the day. Right. Yeah. Which was sort of our little St. Mark's kind Mm -hmm. of place and trainee and the fan district association, ABC board and all these people got together and they did the same thing. They, they sort of punitively uh, applied things just, you know, specifically against demographics to get them out of there so that they could, so VCU could move in. And that's exactly what happened in the East Village. Now, when did that happen? When are, are you thinking that happened to Gray Street? Um, like in the early 90s, really? Like huh. that's, that's when it started to happening? To me, that's when, that's when I was hanging out in Gray Street. <laughs> and so my like, man, it should be like it was, is like 92, 94. Mm-hmm. Like, to me, it was totally over then, dude. That's crazy. Like, I mean, the biograph was gone, but I can't really remember there were, other When specifics. I was in college, it was fucking like... 10 clubs there was biker bars topless bars there was a porno theater i mean it was like a mini mixture of Times square and um st mark's place over there there was a lot going on and people hanging out all the time yeah for me it was it was the metro and twisters which later became nancy reagan i think Mm -hmm. and um and the lee theater i think had just closed or just been taken over by vcu VCU. but i remember when i was a kid being fascinated with the lee theater specifically their listings and the paper because that was the pornographic theater that would Mm -hmm. show like like parody things so it'd be like snow white and the seven dicks (laughs) and i was just like these are hilarious titles (laughs) i love them just the just the words they were hilarious so you know that i don't know how we got what was this train we were going with oh um moving to that i moved to new york right so it was already like i mean have you been to saint mark's place recently 
I guess it's been two. 2010 was the last time it's I was all Japanese. Is it really? Yeah, it's all these like like um, like Tokyo Japanese, right? Like weird mm-hmm. little automats and things. Yeah, yeah. automats and Japanese uh, like marts, like like convenience places and uh, restaurants, and they've got a bunch of yogurt places, frozen yogurt places. Yeah, more than right. Somebody told me I, I, the club that I was talking about was right there on St. Mark's at uh, Coney Island High. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. Uh, like you know, at that point, like we couldn't let a line form out there. We couldn't l- allow dancing. They w- they wouldn't. What w- they were keeping the club alive on raves and hip hop parties, but it was really a punk rock club. But nobody had any money in punk rock and in the rock and roll scene, so they could have a couple raves and just keep everything going. But you know, they they that place doesn't have a cabaret license, so you can't have dancing. And so we had we had a kill switch in there. We had to like hit a button, like if people. You know, if the fuzz came through the front door and, and shut it, it all was, down. Yeah, and this is like I moved out of Richmond to get away from that kind of bullshit, and it it started up in earnest like in '96 or. And now just runs. nobody wants it. Everyone yeah. like they like in in removing it, they've removed the interest and need, and now everyone's like, "Oh, I'm just so happy there's a Chipotle close to my house right. now," and you just want to mm-hmm. tear your hair out. Yeah, I mean, fucking Times Square is is a food court. Yeah, you know, they have a Sparrow. It, it, uh, oh, well, they've had a Sparrow for a long time. They the but they don't even have streets. <laughs> they don't even have streets in part of it parts of it anymore. Really? They just have like little little tables. Thingy. Yeah, little tables and chairs, so you can sit in the middle of Times Square and enjoy your pierogi. Or whatever. Enjoy your pierogi. That sounds familiar. <laughs> Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You listen to that too? Uh, not so much anymore. I used to. Yeah. I've had to. I've cycled through, especially through comedy podcasts, because mm-hmm. um, you know you end up hearing so many of the same people. Guests, yeah. yeah. And they're talking about the same kind of things. And I um I love podcasts, but I, I tend to listen to more like. NPR mm-hmm. type of nerd one. Do ones you like now. On Being? Do you listen to that? Oh one? no, I don't listen to that's that really one. Good. No, I'll check it out. I'm a I'm a big Radio Lab fan. That's good. I like that. They get a little too screwball for me sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah, all the editing and sound, sound effects. effects. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I I like their premises a lot. But On On Being is like is like an, a one hour of somebody usually kind of spiritual and spirituality and science and and things kind of mixing together. But it's very like old school public radio kind of. Serious, mm-hmm, kind know. of like thoughtful, mm-hmm. quiet, it's low deep, voices, inspiring, mm-hmm. all that. Krista Tippett's got that, like, yeah, she is that sort of quintessential public radio lady. She makes uh, Terry Gross like seem a little street. I think know. it's hilarious when Terry Gross gets animated about something or excited. <laughs> You're like, oh, look at you, because <laughs> she's normally so. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um. So we're talking today to. Seth Rogen about his fart jokes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever, when she, she, when she gets excited. Sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty fun. So I don't know where to, to start here. I mean, we can have an organic conversation about just like catching up because I don't even really know you, but we have all of this stuff in common. But I became interested in what you do because I had written off comedy, and this is maybe pun intended, as a thing I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Up until I started listening to Mark Maron's podcast, and I realized how much of the same shit goes into that kind of writing that went into what I was doing, which I was more interested in serious writing, you know. I mm-hmm. guess the drama, the tragedy side, as opposed to the comedy side. Mm-hmm. And it really reminded me that comedy is the flip side of that. It's the other side of the coin. We're talking about the same issues, but we're laughing at them instead of crying 
over yeah. there. Well, there's a phrase that we use a lot in, in improv, especially, but in all comedy, truth and comedy, that it's all about finding the truth. And, and, and when you think you've got to, to the level of, of truth, about, especially about yourself, like peeling that back and, mm-hmm. well, what's that? What's mm-hmm. that? And so if you're, if you're the type of person who kind of does that anyway, that like navel gazing, you can make something productive w- with it's it. True. With mm-hmm. comedy. Also, it's almost like, um, like tragedy is like, Death and comedy is survival. Mm-hmm. Like if you have the same set of situations, you can dwell on it and be like, ah, I'm so tragic. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, so that's the way that is. And how do we keep surviving through right. it? And where do we go? And d- it doesn't necessarily mean positivity, but mm-hmm. it's just dealing with the with with the. Well, there's a catharsis yeah. to it. It's dealt with somehow. You know, it's kind of. <laughs> and not being scared to deal with it. And you know, so you're. I guess that kind of a comedian and i've seen most recently the stuff that you did on come out bell uh mm-hmm. it, the two things were on youtube and mm-hmm. so that's taking some stuff that you might actually be angry about oh and, yeah you know and being able to sort of you know sardonically comment on it sarcastically comment on it, ar- ironically and also be funny and and you know whatever and play around with that so that's the kind of comedy i really appreciate i don't like what turned me off of it was all the mean-spirited you know mm-hmm. just I mean, Will Ferrell, and, and and it just seemed like somebody was just the rube. Somebody was getting mocked, well, like something really. Yeah, and that was one of the things with our show that that was a a fun challenge was kind of not making fun of anyone, um, or or never making fun of a victim or a little guy. Only making fun of the 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 aggressor, the um, you know, the oppressor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times you would you'd write a piece and then show it to someone else on the staff and they'd be like, that's great, except for this part where you make fun of fat people mm-hmm. or this part or mm-hmm. f- where you make fun of women or this part. Mm-hmm. Of, and we would each have our own sort of areas that we were a little more sensitive to. So it was a good team that way. Um, and was that Kamal Bell's like oversight you know was he saying this is going to be a funny show but it's not going to be mean-spirited or yeah, yeah that was that was definitely a directive from him at the very beginning we, like we don't want to throw someone else over the bo- or under the bus to to make a point about something like we can't it's not fair to because i think with his person his specific personal journey it was a lot about um the rights of black people mm-hmm. african americans and um and in doing that, he very often, according to him, threw women un- under the bus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of had some discussions and had an awakening about it and decided he didn't want to do that anymore and that that, was, um, that that wasn't who he was and so it shouldn't be who his comedy was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with our show, that extended to other areas also and other, other groups. So besides the the bit that, the stuff that you got on, like that you got to perform, you were all were you also mm-hmm. writing for? Yeah, I actually there there are four clips and <laughs> unless FXX decides to pull them, there are four clips online that I am in and that I wrote, mm-hmm. um, and I wrote all of all four of them. One includes all of our cast, and the other three are just me. Um, and besides that, yeah, I was writing for Kamau. We would help each other on our uh, personal uh, the correspondent pieces. Um, we were writing, I, I was on the monologue team for a lot of it. So I would just be writing jokes, 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 jokes. And that's the thing that I don't think a, a lot of the, the average person has an appreciation for is that most of the time, the guy who's delivering the monologue isn't writing. No, it. no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, you, and there are so many jokes written for every jokes, for every joke that is told. Uh-huh. Um, you have to have like anywhere from 12 to 50 to throw out for each one. Um, and that can be very frustrating. Mm-hmm. It can be uh, very 
you know, grueling to try to come up with that many jokes that are all funny, that are all high quality enough to be on air, that are high qual that are in the voice of the person you're writing for. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I also wrote for Joan Rivers. I am right. technically still on strike from Fashion Police for writing for Joan. You were on strike? Yeah, I'm on strike. What's up with that? Uh, they were grossly underpaying the writing staff for Fashion Police. So we went on strike And was back this connected April. to one of the other writer strikes? Or is this no, I mean, it was, it was led that? by the WGA. Mm -hmm. um, but, and that's uh, the Writers Guild of America? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but it was just, you know, it's another situation like there are so many of in America um, where there are people at the top who are making a crazy amount of money off of something mm -hmm. and all the people who do all the work to make it happen, whether it's with their you know, brains or bodies or whatever aren't making any of the money off of it. We were making like $480 a week Wow! to write a, a hit show. So, um, but on that show I had to write, um, 200 jokes a week for, for her. And then there was 12 of us. And so there were 12 of us writing 200 jokes a, a week. That's, Whatever. That's a shit ton That's of jokes. That's a shit ton of jokes, right? <laughs> for, <laughs> for, for one little old lady to say mm -hmm. in a 40-minute show. Um, so when I moved over to Kamau's show, not only was I excited to finally be talking about stuff that I cared about and not feel like I was part of the problem right. socially, um, but I was excited to not have that kind of a, 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 a quota in front of me every day. Mm -hmm. but, and so... Is that a thing that you find that you can do, like, right what jokes? that show, well, <laughs> about shit that you have no, uh, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, you have to. Um, and, the, and and even with Kamau, even with Totally Biased, I would end, we would end up covering stories that I was like, really? Mm -hmm. I don't know about this. All right. Um, and you still find, find ways to write jokes, and you try mm -hmm. to offer your host uh a, a bunch of different angles and ways to go because you also can't always tell when, when it's a daily show and you're moving that quickly mm -hmm. you don't always have time for meetings on meetings on meetings to really suss out their point of view about something right. so you kind of have to think well you know if they if if they want to attack this angle or that angle or this and you kind of look around for different clips to give give yourself some some other angles or directions to go so as a writer like did you What's the metamorphosis of you becoming a writer? I mean, you're writing for yourself because uh, improv isn't writing at all. It was the all. opposite of yeah. It's and, doing everything but writing. Right. So, at what point does it? Did you begin writing? And well, I was working at the uh, at the UCB at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York, and I had been performing there for a long time, and I think I had started teaching, and I I just kind of realized that in doing improv, you're throwing your imp your comedy down a well, mm -hmm. and you'll just never see it again, mm -hmm. and that didn't seem right. So I started working on sketches, and uh, and I, I wrote a couple sketch shows, and did like character things, and then eventually I started getting into stand up, and then when I moved out to LA, I started doing stand up. Like I went really hard with it that that was my going to be my main thing, and uh, I started tweeting. I got on Twitter, and Twitter is just jokes. Yeah. I mean, for for a comic, like mm -hmm. other people use it for different reasons, but for comics, it's just jokes. And not only is it jokes, but it's got to be concise because it has that right. character. It's a limit. particular kind of joke. So you have right. to be good at figuring out what's your fat, what can you take out, and mm -hmm. how can you still get the joke across. I've kind of rolled back, and I don't do it as much anymore, especially since I've been working but uh one of the things i'm excited about not working uh is tweeting more mm -hmm. because it really is that the, it hones your joke ability mm -hmm. and i started getting 
offers, not necessarily for jobs, but to apply for jobs, Mm -hmm. um, to submit for things based largely on my Twitter, Mm -hmm. um, because people could see, Oh, she's a joke writer because all the other things that I did, and I didn't even know I was a joke writer. All the other things I did were so personality based and character based and, or situational, like, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sketchy. Uh, you, you, you don't notice the, the well, I don't think people in general realize how much writing goes in all of this except yeah. for improv. And even that is writing. Really, it just yeah, isn't. Yeah, you're writing on, on your feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you use the same instrument to do it, your brain. Everything and, but discipline. Yeah. Right. Which is what I love about <laughs> talking into a mic. I yeah, just, see? It's so great. You know, I don't like editing. You know? <laughs> all you do is schedule it. You show up. Mm-hmm. You did something. And whatever something. happens when I talk, I'm like, well, that's that's just <laughs> coming from the universe, <laughs> you know? Because I, bo- I can't do it. But... Since I've become aware of, like, just how much painstaking work goes into writing something, like, I just really didn't know this. That, like, I figured all stand-up comedians, like, it was new every time they did it, which is absurd. But I thought that, (laughs) for some reason, that they just got up there and they were funny and they just had these things. And it's – I never gave it a lot of thought. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just something I really took for granted until I listened to guy after guy that sounded like he was dealing with the same – or and woman, too, dealing with the same shit that I deal with. Mm -hmm. But what they were doing with it was writing jokes, but that they write and write and write and hone and polish and then take it out there and bomb with it. So when you started doing stand-up, you must have known that you were writing then. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that I was writing at that point. And I, um, yeah, it, it was just so so much fun to, to do all those things, to, to hone it, to find out, oh, if I wait a little bit longer before I say this word, mm-hmm. then I get a better laugh. Right. Or if I say this word instead of that one, then I get a better laugh. And uh, at first it was because of my improv training, it was difficult for me to incorporate any improv into the stand-up. I almost like recited my stand-up mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. memorized. Um, cause I think like I separated those parts of my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure. then finally, like once I got more comfortable with all the other elements of stand-up of being on the stage and moving the microphone stand to the side and mm-hmm. trying to plant yourself and all mm-hmm. that, then I could kind of start. Is that a thing that you get coaching on? Like, okay, go up there, get the mic, take the stand, put it over here. You can. There are people who teach that stuff. It, getting classes or coaching in, impro- in um, stand-up is kind of like taking bartending lessons. Yeah. Like. Pointless. Yeah. And the, and the real bartenders are like, oh, seriously, you yeah. took a class. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with comics. They're like, you learn by you get your ass up there and you do right. it. And the audience teaches you. Right. And you just keep at it and you suck at it and you suck and you, at it and you, you get better I guess and you better. would learn things by osmosis from other people being around and stuff like that. I mean, and there is that fine line, okay, stealing an influence, you know, because <laughs> mm-hmm. all, I guess all popular art or any kind of art is, is the metamorphosis of things, you know, people see this monkey see monkey do, they incorporate a little bit, whether they're intentionally doing it or not, it's a stream of things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, you're definitely influenced by people. Right. You just don't want to, I mean, the, I think the line is, you know, you you want to be able to do shows with other people. So if I'm on a show with five other people and I get up and I do a joke that's exactly like what someone else is about to do mm-hmm. and I do it because I've heard them, like if it's grown out of their bit, yeah. either way, they can't do their joke now. Yeah. So if it happens accidentally, oh, well, that was an accident. We'll talk about it after the show and somebody will be like, hey, you know, that person has a joke that's like that and you figure mm-hmm. it out. If, if you are basically stealing an idea or word for word stealing a joke, you're just screwing that person. No right. one's going to want to have you on shows. But there are shows. plenty of people that would make that their strategy, right? But they, I, but don't, they get I don't think there are plenty of people because those people don't get <laughs> asked really to get do w- shows. Right. Because I don't want to put somebody on my show who is just going to steal material. Right. And, uh, I mean, it would be... 
the hugest nightmare in the world if someone else got successful off of something Mm -hmm. that I wrote for myself. If someone stole my own, my material and then it led to their success, I would want to tear my head off. Mm -hmm. It would be the worst. So, so that's, I mean, people do get really upset about it. Um, cause as I said, that's the only, that's all we've got. Yeah. So you're doing the, the, the metamorphosis and I've, and I've pulled you away from it a little bit. Like you're, you started doing stand up, you started mm-hmm. writing and you started to realize you were a joke writer mm-hmm. and other people noticed you were a joke writer. Yeah. I think other people did before I did. I felt like a real sham. My first mm-hmm. few jobs. I was like, I don't know why these people picked me for this. Mm-hmm. I, they are fooled <laughs> and this is going to be a disaster. Mm-hmm. And then I would just be able to do well at the job. I, I, I turned out the right work that they wanted. Um, and then that happened over and over and over. And then other people who I thought were good joke writers would say, yeah, you know, you're really good at this. And I would be like, really? I, okay. Yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I am. And to the point where now I, I think I am I think yeah. I'm pretty good at it. Well, so there's an interesting thing to me about, I mean, cause I guess you and I both have an influence of, the traditional kind of punk rock mm-hmm. thing in the back there, which is about total originality and never selling out at all. And as you get older, you redefine what that means, I think, right? Because you do need to support what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, you, like you said, let the audience teach you. You have to respond to a degree to what is wanted or desired out there. Yeah, but, I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But as you, I mean, you're develop, obviously developing a voice mm-hmm. and your own thing that is Liza Skinner when you're on stage and whatever else you're doing is authentically you, but then you have to play a character to write for other people to mm-hmm. some degree, right? Yeah. You have to get inside other heads. I mean, you're behind the scenes doing this, but you're you're constantly changing your perspective. And yeah. does that fuck with your ability to be... So far, I don't feel like it's fucked with it. It's kind of like the difference between craft and art. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm I am writing jokes for other people, it's like if I was in, like making cabinets in someone mm-hmm. else's house. Sure. And like these all open, they shut, they're the way you wanted them, I get paid, great. But then when I would go home, I might make like the cabinets that I think are like far more aesthetically me mm-hmm. and that I get excited about and I discover new things. Now, when I'm making cabinets for other people, I'm getting better at the whole process of it mm-hmm. and I might learn some things that I want to bring into my own. Um, same stuff. Like I'm not going to write jokes about Rihanna's asshole for mm-hmm. my from my personal set, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that's what I had to do for Joan Rivers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, but learning how to write that fast helps me in my own set, my own, mm-hmm. my own material. Um, I imagine it would be a little bit, there's gotta be some streak in you that wants to write some shitty joke about Rihanna's asshole. <laughs> and although it isn't anything that you would consciously cop to, that there's gotta be some little bit of, the, you know? the thing that's in me that that drove us it's like playing a murderer you know <laughs> yeah well and what it was it's it was the other writers mm-hmm. so when you would come to the table and just have the meanest shittiest thing that could never even get on air that was just too horrible you would still pitch that at the table half right. the time just just for the other writers just mm-hmm. to to make them cackle um and that kind of kept us going a, a lot because i mean how many things are there to say about Katy Perry's boobs or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but there's that feeling of wanting to say something about it <laughs> that is part of what makes so much comedy comedy is that people f- have a person they want to be 
in a polite society, or maybe not even polite society, just to get along with other people so that they don't have problems, mm-hmm. you know, maybe so they can ply their trade or they can, you know, just exist or whatever the fuck. So they hold in a lot of things that they think. But for some reason, our minds still generate these fucking judgments, like these hardcore, like brutal judgments, things that are nasty, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we... We want to say them. We want to do something with them. And we get some person has to like, you know. Do you, do you mean like we want to like we hate that person or we just want no, you just to say the bad nasty. thing? You, you just want to say the bad thing. Just, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm such a stinker. Like, yeah. Kind of <laughs> I mean, I think yeah, it comes yeah, yeah. from a lot of places. I mean, it comes from a feeling of like. Uh, somehow they're getting mine and mm-hmm. somehow th- that celebrity, you know, somehow is, is threat, a threat to me on some level and I need them brought down a bunch of pegs. Like I'm looking at the cover of an Enquirer or a Star magazine mm-hmm. and it's celebrity body disasters, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's all of these people fucked up plastic surgery and who've gained a shitload of weight and all this stuff at the beach and whatever. Like what's the appeal of that? The appeal is, oh, they're horrible too, even though they're know. celebrities. I mean, I guess that's the appeal to some people. For me, the appeal is the same as like an old school freak show. Right. Like I look at that the same way that I would look at a, a two-headed frog in a jar, and I'm saying I would look at a two-headed frog in a jar. Mm-hmm. Like just so what is the, it, like. I think whoa. the fact that it's celebrities, which is why a Joan Rivers show also exists, I think, is that. People feel so much less than those people, so it's great for them to see that oh, the celebrities aren't gods; they're fucked up and you know. Yeah, busted. I think that's probably it too. That's probably part of it. I think also though, celebrities feel they feel to us as though they've given us permission to do that, right? Because they decided to become celebrities, so mm-hmm. we're allowed to talk about them, so we can say awful things that we can't say about the woman sitting across from us in a food court of a mm-hmm. mall. Because if we said it about her, that would be we'd be so cruel. Why would we be picking on this poor stranger? But uh, Jennifer Lawrence, yeah, sure, she's mm-hmm. successful. Tear her apart, you know. Um, I think you're 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 right that there there is just some we hate them for their success, well, but there's also f- a license, yeah, because of their success. Yeah, I mean, and, well, we don't feel like they're human. I mean, I'm not talking about me necessarily, but people don't feel like they're, mm-hmm. you know, the people that buy those magazines, whatever, they don't feel like they're human. And in some respects, it's a humanizing thing to recognize that they are like them. They like without the makeup or whatever, and that makes them feel better about their themselves. But I mean. I, maybe I'm talking personally about me. Is I, <laughs> I try not to be nasty, but I used to really like writing, trying to f- come up with some fucked up shit to say when I was writing record reviews, and mm-hmm. and I would take innocuous press releases and turn them into ridiculous blurbs and punchline, you know, about like something about the Virginia Aviation Museum talking about huffing glue, you know, mm-hmm. and for I just had a streak that wanted to go that route and like now i really don't want to be that person that sounds just like being like you were just being a shit starter yes <laughs> and i still want to do that right but you're just but oh, you're, you're repressing it i would have to say i've sold out to some degree i mean huh. now no that's not entirely true because like it doesn't have anything to do with this podcast what i, I genuinely like only want to have stuff on here that i'm positive about mm-hmm. because there's just so much negative shit mm-hmm. that people put a lot of energy into and I don't mean negative like you're bringing me down man I mean like it's always like I don't like that I don't like that you know and like you know I think that some of this the the my reticence to be to to be like yeah about this is my improv training mm-hmm. because what you just said is the opposite of 
uh, improv training, the like bringing stuff down, like, no, I'm not going to do that. No, no. Like the basis of improv is yes anding. Right, right. And before I got before I got so indoctrinated in improv, I was very, no, 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 that's stupid. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. And this is dumb because right. of this. And I'm better than that because of this. And like, da, 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 da. just said no to everything. And that leaves you just like in this tiny little space. You can't do anything because you already said everything was stupid. Right. And what now? Who who can you hang out with? Because everybody's stupid. Now there's, I'm just this society, this one club of one. Yes, exactly. Know? And I don't like me. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> exactly, because <laughs> I'm probably a big jerk also. So um, with improv, it's all just yes anding. So uh, it, you know, in, and that's within the context of a scene. And then it, you start looking at the way that you interact with people and the way that you talk to them. And so when someone says, you know, I like mm. pizza, instead of being like, no, it's stupid, you start being like, yeah, pizza's what fun. Kind of pizza? And pizza yeah. with bumblebees and plaster? Yeah, yeah, like whatever, <laughs> you know. And you, and it doesn't mean that you give up all, all right to have opinions and you just take other people in a totally and, different direction yeah yeah and you and you and take it in a direction right as you said like right. instead of just stopping the movement right um well i you know and knowing that that's that makes it fascinating to me because my impression without giving it a lot of thought was it's a bunch of annoying people <laughs> really trying to just amuse others too hard trying too hard like bad the, improv is exactly like that. that yeah, yeah. oh i can't i mean i can't watch improv I can't watch improv. Uh, I, I, I used to at least watch it because I was getting paid to. Mm-hmm. And I can't even do that anymore because tons of it is that. And especially mm-hmm. when it's people starting out and mm-hmm. they're scared and nervous. So blah. But I do think it's a good thing to study just for that mindset of, yeah, and what else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what you were saying about really prote- paying attention to how you are listening and mm-hmm. how you are how much you are actually engaged with a person or if they're just this shadow that you're like you know shut up and get out of my face mm-hmm. or, or like when or do give i get me to what talk i need or... and then get out of here or <laughs> whatever and like really having because i think there's an awesome like meditation and an exercise there that applies to lots of other shit yeah. so i mean it's I just like I wouldn't be embarrassed for how hard they were trying, and it also felt like these troops, like the EPA team, that would show up at school. At, you know, they're they're singing and dancing. It's almost like the way people feel about mimes. Like Ugh. I don't want to be entertained by, yeah. it. but yet I've actually gone to a show and I'm sitting in the audience and I'm feeling like, why are you bothering me? Well, I also uh, a big thing to me is the the energy exchange. That sounds really fruity tooty, but mm-hmm. it, the energy exchange in performing sure. is that the audience. The audience are the, they're the ones who, uh, you're the one at work as the performer, not the audience. They're the ones who left their house, drove there, bought a ticket, probably got a babysitter. This might've been Mm -hmm. their only night out. Mm -hmm. So to put on a performance that's like, look at me, look at me Mm -hmm. is so disrespectful. You need to, it needs to be all about entertaining them, not about being congratulated by them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, like uh, those, the shitty improv and the mimes that make you uncomfortable, it's, you feel this obligation as an audience member that you like have to pay attention. Right. Because their narcissism up there needs. Yeah. You have to like make them feel better and like, Mm -hmm. oh, good. And I, and it happens a lot with stand up too. Stand ups, any kind of stand up that's like, you guys aren't paying attention or you didn't get that joke because you're stupid or any of that stuff. It's like. You're you're the one who's supposed to be working. It's right. not this exchange is not about them making you feel cool. Right. It's about you entertaining these people, mm-hmm. which is should be kind of selfless in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I guess the the kind of comedy that I really have come to appreciate is that and 
I mean, I know it's fucking common to say Louis C.K. is is no, he's great. This, but what he does up there isn't just what I used to think of as comedy. He blows my mind sometimes. Like he puts things a certain way. He finds a perspective on something. He draw, ties some seemingly unrelated shit together, mm-hmm. and you and, and I find myself like almost like the way when you're stoned and you start going. Whoa, I never, you know. Yeah, and he's fearless in the way that he will just flay himself. Mm-hmm. He will just tear himself wide open. Talking about him sh- sharding himself and things. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. yeah, and it, and it, and and allowing, like, he has no no preciousness about himself, which makes it feel like, well, this isn't narcissism. Like we're all here to worship you. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm going to use every piece of the Buffalo and the Buffalo is me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm going to use all of that to find truths to entertain you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it is, and it isn't just entertainment though. It is, it is ritual. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, there is some, like you said, sacrifice going on there. And I mean, the point of all of this is to see the connection, you know, the connection between people. We're all in this room laughing together and we're engaging and all of this kind of stuff for some subliminal or subconscious need, you know. And I think the good comedians confirm that, that shared experience, even if it's Brian Regan talking about how ridiculous reading is. I love Brian Regan. He's kind of (laughs) awesome. He's made me laugh harder than anybody, like on like on the Netflix things that I have I saw him live him. and it was crazy. The audience, it was packed. It was like a like a four level theater, like this big fancy theater in L.A. It was packed, and the audience acted like they were seeing like Pink Floyd. They mm-hmm. were like they were screaming out jokes like "Do pop darts" <laughs> and like fist pumping. And I was like, I could see that for some comics. I did not expect it for Brian right. Regan, who's just like your favorite librarian. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're very animated. But yeah, people were so into him. I loved it. I, I can understand why. And I think that's the thing is I love it when comedians mock themselves and they make that sacrifice and they put, you know, if they want to turn that energy of, of ridiculing something, it should be on the thing they know the best. And, and that is really disarming. And at the same time, it gets you to respect that person, you know, that they're not, they're not just up there smugly pointing fingers at shit. They're really saying, no, this is, I'm identifying that what is absurd is me. And, Mm -hmm. and so you are too, you know, and everything else is, you know, and, uh, well, and I think that so much of comedy comes from wanting to be understood. And I think that's why there's a lot of others, people mm-hmm. who kind of walk in between societal groups, even if it's someone just like, like Mark Maron, who says that he was never a member of any of the cliques and he mm-hmm. walked in between those groups. And sometimes it's people who never feel like they were specifically a part of a uh, a race or a gender, mm-hmm. like they were a little too manly to be a girl or a little mm-hmm. too uh, white to be a black guy or like whatever, according to society. Right. Um, Which they so had to participate in and agree with. Well, in the first place, you know. Well, I mean, but when you're a kid, you you don't you you don't really understand how much of that. So when you're getting programmed, mm-hmm. you don't know what it is you're being programmed right. to do or buy. Mm-hmm. You're just like, I don't feel quite like I belong mm-hmm. in this or that. So I think a, that often grows comics who are just trying like do you understand me now? Mm-hmm, do you understand mm-hmm. me now? Now do you understand me? Mm-hmm. And I think we all want to understand each other. Mm-hmm. So when you have a comic who's really trying to reach out and be understood, they are also trying to understand at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, so, yeah, and I think that w- that where we grew up uh, creates a lot of that because mm-hmm. I think there was always I was never not aware that I was the other. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like I think a lot of white people mm-hmm. grow up thinking that all people are white, mm-hmm. except for these other. You get people. to have that experience for some period of time, yeah. where everybody it's homogenous. Everybody around here, you looks like you. Mm-hmm. But not only did we not have, we had a, min- a minority of of Caucasians in our neighborhood, but none of our these white families in Churchill were from the same place. Like, no. I mean, except for. You know, my mom <laughs> and Marion, you know, yeah. but other, you know, you got a dad from England mm-hmm. and I don't know where your mom's originally she from. From the, Richmond. From Richmond. From Richmond, is. Richmond, Richmond, all the way back. Then we got the Silvers who were uh, Connecticut, New York, mm-hmm. you know, the Corleys who are from the Midwest, uh, Ben and Ginny. And Dieter. Hence, yeah, he yeah, was German. German. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Dad was German. He I turned know. orange when he was little because he ate too many carrots. Did he really? That's what I remember about him. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I put dried dog shit down the back of his shirt one time. Aww. I just thought it would be a funny joke, but <laughs> it was an international incident uh, involving <laughs> parents coming over for a concert. Wow. <laughs> my jokes went a little too far. Intense. Mm-hmm. That's maybe perhaps why I try to edit myself now. <laughs> you cross the line too hey, much. Man. So it's all a bit living in honesty. But that thing that you said about, um, and I, I mean, I this I'm suddenly in a society of one. Like, I think initially people who don't feel like they belong, they find little subsets and little subgenres. But that, and and they do belong for a little while, whether it's like as a goth kid or uh, you know one of the geeks who plays Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, and you feel you're safe amongst your your people, and the bullies aren't going to beat you up, and there are no girls around pointing and laughing or whatever. Um, but that some people grow out of that and they just find their humility and they find a place in the world and they're not so concerned with what other people think. They're like, I got a job to do. I got a family to, you know, whatever. But for the people that doesn't happen for, it begets a lens on life and you wind up in that painted into that corner in that society of one. And I think the, the amazing thing to me is I, I was kind of there like five years ago and I, you know, I went on, I went to Minnesota to stop that. You know, like I really made a conscious choice. You went to the choice. coldest place in the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, they have some great, they have uh, hot springs there, we'll say. Oh, that's you know, nice. The yeah. cottage industry. Yeah. Of, and the Mall uh, of America. Of so. people who are like that, who know how to fix people who are like that. Yeah. You know. And, I, have, uh, I have some friends who've spent time in Minnesota. You know, you know about it. I would yeah. think so. Yeah. Nobody so sure. This is when I get start listening to Mark Marin and realize he's talking to person after person after person that is basically saying... You know, I don't feel like I fit in and I don't belong. So finally I go, well, everybody feels like that Mm -hmm. and either get over it at a young age or you let it control you the rest of your life. I'm kind of surprised that he is still as neurotic as he is when he's heard this many stories and he engages in them. And he's heard people talk about trying to kill themselves by sawing their fucking head off. And he's still... I mean, he's learned some things, but he still seems to feel very like well, uniquely tortured. Or something. I mean, he also has an investment in being that. Mm-hmm. You well, know, that's I, his brand. I, right? Yeah, and I think also people kind of get they romanticize these pictures that they have of themselves. Um, I always think about it with quitting smoking. My uh, my boyfriend quit smoking, and it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for much him? of it for, for him. Oh, well, for everyone. <laughs> really, everyone in a four-mile radius. Um, but I mean, he did the, the he did a, a good version of it. But it's that's just always an awful thing uh, to go through. Um, 
And I think so much of it is lose is letting go of that picture of yourself, mm-hmm. like as a cool right. river Phoenix smoking guy. Um, and then that extends to, I think the like angry guy, punk guy, like nobody understands me, like just letting go of that picture mm-hmm. and being like, Oh, if I let go of that, that's not going to change who I am. I'm like for Mark Marin, like, he talks about a lot like I know I, this isn't where my comedy comes from I know I would be funny if I wasn't angry and neurotic but he mentions it so often that you're kind of like do you know that I, I think you know he, that, his you don't insecurity have to say may run that deep <laughs> but yet like I got to go see him do stand up and what I appreciated about him was that he wasn't really being a comedian oh yeah he just kind of talks sense. he's more of a humorist like fucking yeah. Will Rogers or something mm-hmm. you know and I think he's wound up being a lot of people have funneled that outsider neurosis thing through him, so he's become the the the, uh, the soother mm-hmm. of that, you know. And that oh, really yeah, is what man. he's good at, you know. He is. I have followed him at comedy shows, and it is difficult uh, because his fans love him so much, and they come to see Mark Maron, mm-hmm. not necessarily to see a comedy show. Mm-hmm. Um, I made his fans really angry one time, accidentally, mm-hmm. uh, when he was engaged, and he had just got engaged, and he talked about it on stage. He was like, I'm engaged, third time, maybe third time's the charm, you know, and he did funny stuff about it, and whatever, but he had mentioned that fact about himself. And then I got up, and I did some material about the fact that I had been engaged and had called off the engagement. And I referenced, I was like, yeah, it just wasn't for me. I mean, not one time, let alone three. And the mm-hmm. audience was like, boo. And I was like, what? But I didn't say anything bad about him. But they were, <laughs> they love him so much. They were like, well, Protect you mentioned him. it. And he might feel bad. <laughs> you referenced him in some way that wasn't positive. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, guys, come on. So, hmm. Yeah. You uh, have, were engaged. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I was engaged. And I am not anymore. How long ago was that? That was two years ago that ended, I think. Three, maybe? No, two. Woo. Yeah, it was about two years ago. Um, yeah, no big whoop. He's fine. I'm fine. So I'm just do you, did you find that, um, uh, wait a minute, the writing, does it, the being in a relationship affect like what you write and what you would go yes. on stage and yes, like does it edit you? Or yes. <laughs> yeah. I, my boyfriend now, I have asked him not to come to my shows as a practice. So he can come sometimes. And sometimes if he's like, yeah, you know, it, that's a big show. Can I come? I'll be like, sure. But at first he was coming to all of them, just like mm-hmm. m- and my ex-fiance would come to all of them. And it's like bringing your boyfriend to work. Mm-hmm. That would be a weird way to work if mm-hmm. you went to the office every day. And yeah. you're like, well, look, he loves me so much. He came. Um, so... So just in in the like needing to be to have my own identity and and be in performer mode and comic mode, I needed that. But also, yeah, you know, you're especially when you're working stuff out, you might say some things that 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 don't quite express how you actually feel or or do on a bad day or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you and you need to be able to massage it into shape. Mm-hmm. before it's in front of someone who might feel that it's about them. Um, so it's like not, not anything terrible or right. awful, but you, know, you can be but flippant. But you can't even do that if you're worried about that person's feelings. Yeah, you, you don't have the freedom. You're, you're, you walk on stage like, oh, God, if, well, if I talk about that, make sure you talk about it real nice instead of just talk about it, see what comes out, see if any of it's funny, and if you can use it again. See, this is the thing that I think 
I mean, just because I would like to try it for the sense of like jumping out of an airplane. And I think I told you that a long time ago. Um, I would have the most trouble if I continued to do it because I like I am not comfortable with what I imagine this this divide. Like I want it all to be one thing. Like I mm-hmm. want to be the same person to everybody. I mean, with within reason. Like I'm not going to be. Well, that's you know. the thing. I think that I I think that I made those restrictions because I do want to be the same to every to in in every situation mm-hmm. and I don't want to feel like uh oh okay I have to be I have to be really c- careful about being about what kind of comic I am right now because mm-hmm. he's here and he might I don't want to accidentally hear, and and so and my boyfriend is also a com- comedian he's uh, he's a comedy writer and he's you know pretty thick skin and I don't think that he would actually be upset about any anything that I would say but it's also me and my it's, mind it's not just that it's like you recognize that you are Eliza Skinner, right? And 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 like with rock stars, you know the the what those those fucking groupie girls said about Mick Jagger. You know, we were trying to get Mick Jagger, and we we're trying to get Mick Jagger, and we finally got him, and he was no Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to create something that is a little different from you to take up on the stage. Um, I mean, because it is a product that you are. It is a product. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are trying to sell this, mm-hmm. and. And therefore, there has to be some level of disingenuousness, you know, some degree of manipulation, like, you know, uh, uh, like, and I'm not, it's not malevolent, malevolent or or whatever, but. (laughs) No, yeah, I mean, you say things that happened today and they didn't actually happen today and you turn up how excited you are about something that you've already talked about 50 times. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those things are are, are definitely, I am, I'm. And and there's a spectrum of that also because there are definitely comics who have a whole personality that mm-hmm. they put on and go on stage with. I can't do that. I can't process things that quickly. Right. It has to kind of just be a more turned up, performance ready version of me. Right. Um, but. But still, you need the fourth wall of not having an intimate relationship in yes. the audience. Yeah. To, fu- to fuck with that. Yeah. Well, and and because in in the, yeah, there's some part of my brain that's like. He knows that didn't happen to you today, or right. she she's heard you say that before, or whatever. Like even if I have friends who've seen me too many times in the audience, and I have to give myself a big gulp of like, you don't have to care about that. You, mm-hmm. you give myself permission to just not give a fuck, um, because I, my default is to give very much of a fuck. Right to a, to a debilitating mm-hmm. degree, which is self consciousness and, and too much self consciousness, which yeah. blocks you from actually being creative. Because yeah. it's basically fear shutting you down. But also, my workaround <laughs> with that is to um, is to acknowledge my self consciousness and have that be a part of what I do, mm-hmm. where I will, you know, say how I'm feeling and and use that, and usually that gets a laugh because mm-hmm. they can tell anyway. Right. So. Well, and I think that this is. I mean, I'm I'm the kind of person that, that reads deeply into all <laughs> things, and like my experience of playing, like. My performance experience is playing in bands, mm-hmm. um, a few different kinds of bands, or two mainly that I actually played shows with. And one of them was, you know, was 100% almost, okay, we'll say 85% improv, you know, that we... Like a big jam band? Well, why did you, not in the sense that, you know, Probably related a jam to band. fucking noodly psychedelic shit. Right. But so that, you wore like one of those big stripey hats? 
Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, glow sticks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Devil sticks. Got it. Got it. Suspenders, okay. no shirt. Cool. Cool. That kind of thing. Hold yeah. the guitar up real high. Oh, man. Hacky sack circles in the it, crowd. It's the ladies love it. Yeah, uh, I bet. But what I was, I, I wanted, like, I, when I was learning about writing, which is what I thought I wanted to be, I learned so many fucking rules. And I learned so many, I took form and theory of fiction, you know, got into deconstructing everything, got into, I, I could no longer just pick up a book and get lost in it because I was paying attention mm-hmm. to everything the writer was doing, you know, and, and it would just took me out of the fictional dream all, all the time. Um, so the minute I got my hands on instruments, I just was like, I wanted this to be a complete like voyage of exploration. Like, so uh, the two other guys I played with liked that idea too. One of them was also just learning. So we just kind of, we had rough sketches, but they turned out differently depending on our moods and whatever. And I didn't see that as like, we're not, we're taking an incomplete project in front of people who've paid to see us. I saw it more like we're risking something. We're making that Mm -hmm. human sacrifice. We may fail and they may not like it, but we may find something that they like that is totally honest because we didn't put any manipulation or any planning into it. I mean, that's... And some people, that's exactly what they're into anyway. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, yeah, show me the raw stuff. Show me right. the process. Woo. Right, right. Um, so, so yeah, if, the, if people know what they're getting into, that's exciting. Sure. And I think but that's even why people don't, go to improv. It's awesome when you got like an, you know, a Andy Kaufman pulling that shit mm-hmm. on people. And it, it is actually maybe even very, you know, he's got that down to a T, but to everyone else, it seems like a raw process that's going on but but then i also played in the in a band that we fucking rehearsed the same goddamn songs over and over and over again the same 11 songs and we played them in the same order and like i played the same guitar solo and like it was all exactly the same and i appreciated having this thing that you know it was still there's still chaos involved no matter what you know you're not doing your show in the same set of circumstances every time whether it's the audience or the pa or the light in your face Mm -hmm. or how you feel that day oh yeah no matter how rehearsed or constructed you think it is there's some something that could come into it no yeah like i know how my jokes work Mm -hmm. but how they get put together and what falls off of them and and what they lead to that'll change And and you're right like how the audience is behaving when i was in a band i felt like the um the, the rehearsing the songs over and over and playing them the exact same way which was the only way we did it and we were mm-hmm. we, we were not skilled but we tried um that to me felt like trying to hold a, a bar of soap like it like it just like ah slip like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. trying to be perfect and trying to get things exact i felt like uh kind of a failure mm-hmm. a lot of the time and so I think that's why I have let it has. I have graduated. I have drifted. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> gravitated. What a great writer! Um, <laughs> I have gravitated towards things where um, it's good to be loose and it's good to allow for that r- growth in between all of your pieces. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I can't do well, the that exact is, stuff. You're doing that with your craft, and this is what I think. Like. What interests me about this particular craft, but you're, you, you know, a lot of what you've said about it, I really, it really strikes me as, and, and this is the most important craft to me right now is getting along with people, mm-hmm. you know, like without any choice on my part, without any intent on my part, I find people angry at me at work, you know, and 
it's not like I need to be liked by everybody or whatever, but I am fascinated by what the fuck, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I mean, I know I can be an asshole. I mean, I, I uh-huh. can intentionally make you upset with me, but you just grafted that onto me while I was minding my own business. Mm-hmm. And the the stuff that goes on between people, which I think all art is a microcosm of, it's like the interplay between that. Like, what is your what are you learning from your art? Um, and what are you learning from life? And like, what are you working out on stage? And what are you taking from stage and working out in life? Like, it seems standing up in front of people and giving yourself permission to fail, you know, and giving yourself the okay to be afraid, that that's a great practice. Like, even if you weren't doing it for money, you <laughs> Just know, as to be a better human. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, fear I think fucks, you know, fear is fucking with you. Well, you fear know, has always time. been a big motivator for me creatively. For mm-hmm. a while, uh, a few years ago, I was uh, making some side money with um, doing a, a creative speaking. Like I would go to companies and give speeches on creativity. And my particular speech was all about fear. That I am, if I am scared of something, then that's what I should do. Mm-hmm. And I, and it's not about uh, pushing down the fear or conquering the fear. For me, it's about becoming friends with the fear. Mm-hmm. Like me and this fear are gonna, we're gonna come up and do this show now. And that doesn't mean that I'm so scared the whole time. It just means that it doesn't throw me off my game when I feel fear. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's what. Ha- that's of course. There's bright lights. Uh, the, it, evolutionarily, I should not want to be alone on a stage with a bunch of lights in front of me, and I can't even see the, the people who are of looking at me. Attention! Am I in front yeah. of a firing squad? I, I, exactly. <laughs> I, there will be wolves eating me. Clearly, right, right, that's the. Right. But um, you're being, and that's where laughter comes from. And I don't want to like hold that thought. I mean, like I understand that at some point it was a way to drive the fuck up <laughs> out of the crew like you know you're a stone age society you can't be fucking yeah, up look at what an idiot die. this person is the, you know they that d- laughter what you were meant to feel embarrassed and feel like yeah you know destroyed by laughter because you yeah, get out of here yeah you know um but yeah so, so fear I, I i find is it almost is like an indicator to me that like that's something interesting mm-hmm, yeah. why are you scared of that why is that a thing um and then i like to kind of pull at that knot and pull the little strings apart um but uh, but I definitely give myself permission to fuck up with this way more than I did with any of the other stages of my career. Mm-hmm. When I was just doing improv, I was really hard on myself. Um, and I was a real dingbat about interacting with other people. I was not very... I was a jerk a mm-hmm. lot of times. Or a lot of times, I don't think I was a jerk. I think like I would have described myself the same way you just did, where I, I could be mean, but also I could just be myself. And then people will be mad at me for some reason all mm-hmm. the time. And I was in a sketch group with this dude. There was like one little tiny conversation that I'm like, I'm going to keep that in my wallet and think about it all the time. Mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. I was in the sketch group. And we had flown out to, we were, I was living in New York, we'd flown out to LA to do a show, and I got sick on the plane, because you just always get sick on the plane, mm-hmm. and I was just in a shitty a mood. Yeah, it's disgusting, so I'm like sitting there with my tea, and I'm all pissed off that I'm the only girl in the sketch group, and all the guys are just being dudes and like mm-hmm. dicking around, and I'm just sitting there with my tea, and one of the guys in the group was like, what's your fucking problem? And I was like, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. And he like pulled me outside, and he was like, do you think it does not affect everyone in the room your energy how you are do you think that it doesn't absolutely change every fucking room you walk into however you are feeling and acting you think we can't tell and i'm like i didn't because i hadn't meant to make anyone feel anything hadn't meant to project anything and that i would just like oh i gotta walk into rooms with a different energy and now i can like see other people do that and i'm like oh that person doesn't 
they don't mean to be mm-hmm. difficult. They don't mean to be like I created this character online that one of my first videos that went that got pretty popular was a girl. I see these girls think that they're flirting with guys and they're just being such shits to them mm-hmm. and they don't and then they go home lonely and they're like how come nobody right loves me mm-hmm. when i was like why are you so stupid you're right. such an asshole right right how come no one loves me uh-huh. <laughs> people just don't like it or a lot of people think that oh, if i don't say something people can't tell that i hate what that with what, what's right. happening i'm like yeah of course they could tell so I, for me it was like a lot of okay just try choose the energy because clearly my default energy was fuck all this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know the thing that strikes me though when you tell that story and i and i i think that you know that's absolutely valid that we can be mindful of like what we're putting out we we can't do that all the time and a yeah. time when you're sick is a legitimate fucking time it's true you know that guy was that was you a know? dick time to tell and, me and that. that guy right who the fuck is he <laughs> To, you know, to say that and not have compassion for the fact that you were sick. Because if the first words out of your mouth is, I'm sick, he'd go, I would say, oh. Yeah. You know, but I'm, I didn't realize you weren't feeling well. Which is actually the case. They're always not feeling well if you're being a dick or whatever. That's I mean, the thing. Like, right. this was not his the first time he had met me. This was not <sighs> the first time that I was like, mm So... So at the end of that conversation, I was like, I was sick. And he's like, I'm sorry. I get it. You're sick right now. But in general, and I love him. And I love that he actually said that to me because I know that there were tons of people who thought that, but just never said it. Mm. So it was really valuable to me that someone actually said, hey, listen, this is what it is for you. This is what it is. That's, you know, I was like, oh, and it's totally like has changed. Like I, I. I am much better at all. It's that stuff awesome now. to be able to be receptive to that stuff and real, but it's so hard to tell if there is, and and I guess you just have to be like able to sort of surgically like extricate what is valid from something that you know, which is I guess why what, what psychologists are talking about with boundaries. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to surgically extricate what is valid about this, what does ring true, and just to be able to say hmm, I can do something about that instead of get defensive and like turn it into a fight but there's a fair amount of it that's just somebody else's shit a lot of times oh yeah well i think that's also an important thing to remember like that that i I still try to work on that when someone because with comics they're all crazy Mm -hmm. they're all crazy monster people Mm -hmm. um that you're hanging out with especially when you're young at it and you're just trying to figure things out um you don't know how to behave you don't know how to react to people so a lot of times i would come into a green room and say like hi and have people be like and my reaction to all of that was that person doesn't like me that person was really disrespectful to me that person Mm -hmm. instead of that person is crazy and Mm -hmm. has a lot of their own shit going on scared to death in this moment and doesn't think they're going to be able to you know make this happen and within the comedy community it's People are doing that to each other constantly. So there's mm-hmm. just so much isolation and so much like paranoia about. So so having come into stand up a little bit older than a lot of uh, my peers and having already gone through that difficulty with improv and sketch. Which is I also can, just the difficulty of growing up. Yeah. You yeah. Know, yeah. You weren't but doing I like, it in the midst of trying to also have an act. And, yeah. But I right. like specifically made like those exact mistakes so now when i'm going to a, a green room now as a stand-up the stand-up green room um and i'm like hey people are like uh, i'm like oh, well. <laughs> all right oh, poor thing. i guess we'll talk later yeah. not right now and they're like 
okay, thank you. And they're like so thankful that someone is being really nice to them. And I just don't carry their energy. It's like, whatever you have your shit. Um, and I give myself a lot of permission. You were saying like permission to fail earlier to, to be at the level that I'm at right now. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't been doing this as long as Mark Maron. Mm -hmm. I haven't been doing this as long as Kumail Nanjiani and Pete Holmes and some of the people that I consider just a few steps ahead of me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm not supposed to be as good as them. So when I go on stage and I, you know, don't do everything I wanted to do or like don't have a great show. I'm like, that's okay. You're supposed, that's supposed to be part it's of this. part of the process. Yeah. Right? And, and I used to get so mad about it's it. It's not so just your upset. act, it's your life. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if you're learning stuff while you're doing that, there's no, you know, there's no time lost or no time wasted. And see, it's very hard for Americans to see things that way. You know, it's like, you know, sink or swim, yeah. you know, and so much of really, surviving is like making like turning that experience into something you embrace and grow through is and i know all this shit that i say i mean like sounds so <laughs> i used to hate it when like jimmy campbell and, and marion and you know they started going to fucking psychiatrists and they'd start talking about boundaries and your shit and my shit and all this kind of stuff and I was like you know this is just psychobabble mm -hmm. you know now i realize it's the you know the only kind of language you have to talk about some really true stuff and I, I was listening to um, On Being yesterday. That show I was telling mm -hmm. you about. I had Thich Nhat Hanh on there, a Vietnamese monk who's really been through some shit, and he's a really compassionate guy. And and he said most people are going around in this state of fear, which is as if they drew a picture of a ghost and scared themselves with it. You yeah, know, they created like it's their made own, up. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like most of the shit that I'm afraid of when it has happened, I'm relatively serene in the midst of it. But I can fuck myself up worrying about it happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and this whole country is upside down uh, over fear. Mm -hmm. Like we're governed so hugely by fear and, uh, and, and fear of each other and fear of the government and fear of what might happen and fear of being honest with ourselves mm -hmm. about where we're at. I think largely financially mm -hmm. as far as mm -hmm. the whole country mm -hmm. goes. Um yeah, I think that that it's it's shocking to me how many poor people refuse to admit that they are poor. That well, we are poor. A long time ago, said that the poor will defend the right to get rich uh, to the last, even if they never do get rich, and it never yeah. benefits them. They still want that game. They still believe in that game, even if they're really the fucking, you know, the pawns, the chattel in yeah. that. And you know, you brought up unions a little while ago. Mm -hmm. That. I got really interested in that because I was in one for just working at Restaurant Depot like a few mm -hmm. years ago. And it's the same thing. Like, hey, women, you know, it's true that you have to try and you need to have um, the right motivation to get better at your job and to succeed at your job. Um, and fear's a pretty good thing for that for part of that, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the whole union thing gets thrown out. Um, as like, it's just people who don't want to work, who want to be protected from losing their jobs while they are total fuck ups and lazy mm -hmm. when no, we've seen with what happens without unions that people get put into coal mines for 15 hours a day and paid in company script mm -hmm. where they can't, you know, they get completely controlled yeah. and exploited. Well, and that happened a hundred years ago or whatever, you know, 150 years ago. 
I th- like one of my favorite ridiculous arguments against unions is, well, with unions, we'd have all kinds of people just sitting around doing nothing because mm-hmm. their union guys are sitting around doing nothing on their jobs. Yeah, I'd love to go to an executive <laughs> office Tell me and about see it. a bunch of people and see that no one is sitting around doing nothing. No one is sitting around having expensive lunches paid for. Like getting drunk, on. doing drugs, yeah. like fucking those th- all those are, things that they say the welfare moms are doing. Yeah. you know. The uh, rich people are doing those and then some. So they've it's set it up so they can that. do that all the time while uh, other people work. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, it's awful. And all of the all of our <laughs> my conspiracy shit will come out with all, all our media outlets. Everyone who's giving us messages, they're all invested in supporting this idea that unions are bad mm-hmm. and that people should be scared and all because they're all run by rich people. People mm-hmm. are very anti-government, anti-public um, uh, television and government-run media because well the government will try to shove their messages down our throats. Well that would be great if there wasn't also big business trying even harder and succeeding at shoving their messages down her throats. The real propaganda comes from the fucking commercial sector. They're the ones who have something to win from it. They're the ones who have money invested in it. Yeah, and when people say the government as if there is some secret society of dudes like Scrooge McDuck, you know... Well, in a way, it has become like a classist thing. It actually is Scrooge McDuck. But the, th- but the image is that the government is something other than a bunch of fucking... Businesses? Pe- pe- yes, businesses manipulating individuals who are so concerned with their careers that they'll do anything those motherfuckers say. And here's this brings me around to something wonderful, though, is the podcasts and the Internet, we get a completely unfiltered, uncontrolled exchange of information. There's nothing ventured, nothing gained. There's nothing at stake in me creating this and talking into this, but it's equal access out there on the Internet. Anybody could find this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be broadcast. It doesn't have to be put on a CD and driven around or flown around the country. It's there, Mm -hmm. you know. And more and more, I listen to other people talk, and I realize all the stuff I'm afraid of or all the stuff that's controlling me and making me think that this is an identity uh, you know, and it's really just a bunch of arbitrary choices I've made about stuff. It can all go away. It's this. Everybody feels like this. I'm mm-hmm. not that. So then I suddenly that I'm liberated into way more freedom in the same life. You know, just because I heard other people talking, well, not people who are manipulating the mm-hmm. message. You know, it's community. Yeah, like uh, community in America has disappeared. We don't live. I mean, besides you, we don't live in the same neighborhoods as our families for the I'm most about part. To, yeah. yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't go to church. We don't uh, uh, know our neighbors, even if we don't live around our families. We don't have those like communities that kind of define us even if we don't agree with everybody i'm one of these people and we mm-hmm. say hello to each other and i know that i'm here because they said hi to me you know just like that low level of like belonging mm-hmm. we don't have it and without it people feel like well, well, a big I don't part of anywhere. it is is actually that thing you said that that guy did to you and like keeping because, people in check <laughs> yeah i mean some of our communities have gone too far with that shit where Way people get far. hung and like put in pillories and you know drowned and things yeah. like that but i feel like even the religious ones it i, I kind of and maybe this is completely made up in my head but i feel like the old uh, view that i have of america is church picnics mm. not necessarily 
prayer picnics, but just we all get together and we right. have pie and we mm-hmm. know each other and that's Yeah, but it. there was, I mean, you know, in the midst of that, you may, you may be idealizing that a little because <laughs> in the midst of that is a whole lot of this controlling of an image and, oh, yeah. and it's a lot of hypocrisy because if somebody showed up at one of those church picnics with a long beard and long hair and no shoes on, uh, they'd be like, get the fuck out of here. And meanwhile, they go he pray to that Jesus. guy. Yeah. yeah. could be fucking uh, Jesus. <laughs> True. Which is a typical... But but I think that I I will defend that I I think that small town churches are what religion should be, not Vatican's and conglomerates of, you know, bishops and whatever. Well, I will take it even... I will take it into the world of 12-step communities Mm -hmm. and say that it's seeking the same things. What my experience of that community is, is that it's seeking the same thing, except that everybody gets to talk. Yeah. It's not just the fucking one personality up mm-hmm. there. In fact, completely emphasize principles over personalities. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets to be, you know, that number one person. And you get confronted, you get put in check by people all mm-hmm. the time. Like, I get that. Like, the, I spent four years or five years in Minnesota, four years in Minnesota getting people to tell me to my face that I'm fucking crazy, <laughs> that I'm, you know, I need to shut the fuck up, that I'm nowhere near well, like, that I need to see things differently, that it's, you know, you're a narcissist like <laughs> to my face, you know, and like love me enough to be that hard on me. And yeah. I'm like, that's what we're missing is that people are so fucking psychotically sensitive that they can't stand to be told when they're wrong. Even when they're asking for help half the time, like, you know, I know people that go to an analyst, you know, pay this person $150 an hour and that person tells them something, they argue with them, you know, and like, cause they just, their ego can't, yeah. Take it. Well, yeah. but there, I mean, that's an, that's an extreme case. There's also the compassion of how you are told things. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but to bring it back to religion, sounds like a Quaker church. Everybody gets to talk, but right. also I am totally skewed because I was brought up Unitarian Universalist, which is just having bagels on Sundays. Mm-hmm. It's like, you just get together and hang out. <laughs> just get together. You talk about like uh, a Unitarian sermon is like, like I remember one that was about uh, spring, and so they would talk about like this is what Native Americans think about spring. This is what Buddhists say. This was a Jewish tradition. This is a Christian. This is mm-hmm, a Muslim. Mm-hmm, now let's mm-hmm. sing a Cat Stevens song. Their perspective. Yeah, right. let's light a candle, think about our ourselves and everyone in the world, and then go have some coffee. You know, all of a sudden I'm seeing this parallel <laughs> between being a stand-up comedian and some desire, like whatever drives people to be spiritual leaders or whatever, to get up on oh, the I mic, definitely thought about that. you know, and deliver a homily. That's the monologue, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's a bunch of other parts of the skit. You know, we come up, we act mm-hmm. out this, <laughs> and act out that. And you all these throw to watching. choir, you throw to, uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. yeah. Oh, I definitely thought about that. And a lot of, uh, a lot of comics have, I know a lot of comics who were like, yeah, I was going to go into the seminary and then I decided to go to an open mic instead. Mm-hmm. And, well, you, and it, I mean, from what I've heard your process is and a lot of other people's process, it's, it is a spiritual process. And when I say spirit and religion is spirituality in handcuffs, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but spirituality is aligning your fucking thing, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, you know, <laughs> how you're coming across, like what, uh, experience you're having of life and how much of that has to do with fine tuning the fucking instrument that you're using to perceive and broadcast, you know, what's going on and to get up on stage in front of people and make yourself vulnerable and receive whatever feedback, which is accountability of a kind, you know, mm-hmm. except you're getting it from the, the congregation is either amen or fuck no, you mm-hmm. know, but you're getting a lot of feedback. It's not like, 
you know, alone in your head, which you could, you could do all of these things. So, but you don't get that with this, right? Is that weird? I get it from you sitting here. Oh, okay. See, for me, this is a, the conversation I get to have with the person with this as an excuse, you know, and I actually, I have to say, talk about the process. I actually got stuck for the first time since I've been doing this because I had so many things I wanted to ask you at the same time. Uh, well, yeah, I kept thinking like, oh, I wish I had a little piece of paper so I could be like, I say that, ask about that, but I don't have one. Because, I mean, really what I've set out to do is like improv with this. Hmm. It's whatever conversation happens when we turn on the mics. And, of course, I know enough about journalism. I could write questions and I could research It'll you. be very formal. But I want something else to happen. It's like what comes into the room when two people just start talking and then where does it organically go mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot of value in being able to respond to that it's like being a surfer you know you mm-hmm. cannot make the wave but you can you know what to do when the wave comes you know like yeah well that's that's what i would always i always said improv training was it's not like rehearsing for a play it's like training for a sport um you know you 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 just run drills and hopefully your muscles and your brain muscles will know what to do mm-hmm. in the moment well, I need I need this thing when it's not you and me talking or one other person talking to be this thing that I put out there. And maybe I don't get feedback about, but I do get occasional feedback. I get something from you. I get something from my friend Sarah. It's like enough, right? Like little candles in the windows <laughs> like out there. Someone heard me. But I really – I never had any trouble getting heard, and I did everything I did before I got involved in that 12-step shit mm-hmm. for an audience, except that it was fucking everybody. It was my family. Mm-hmm. It was who I was dating. It was my friends. It was whatever town I was living in, whether it was Richmond or New York or Southern California. And so now I need to be just doing it for authentic reasons because I want to do it. Mm-hmm. There's no – there's nothing that I'm shaping it for to get that thing from somebody. Like to get that thing for me right now is to not get that thing. Like that's the stage mm-hmm. of development to, that to I'm in. To not do it for that that specific right. carrot. I fuck you know, and yeah. and and I can afford to do that because this costs nothing. Most of the time, you've got to have some kind of thing like that going on because you're trying to you know trying to get people to pay money for it. That, you know? I mean, some of that kind of just surprises me on a, such a fundamental level, and this is, I, I know, oversimplifying a lot of stuff, but just because you're a big, tall man mm-hmm. and that you walk into a room with status. You would think that, right? Well, but I most, think You know what most of that fucking status is for me in my experience growing up in Churchill and then going to an all-girls high school and really seeing myself on the inside as being like all of these other people that are projecting mm. their resentment against white men onto me all the fucking time. Well, so there you go. I think I, th- I think that that means that you walk in with a heavier hammer than you know. Right, you know and that's mean? not my problem. It's the fu- it's supposed to be my <laughs> gift, right? Yeah. I'm supposed to be top 98th percentile. I can do whatever I want to, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like that because a I don't want to do those things that supposedly white men are able to do whatever they you know with impunity mm-hmm. because. That's not how I feel on the inside. Well, but then it's a gift in a different way. You know, that makes it even an even more powerful thing that you you have this privilege um, and status and you can choose what to do with it rather than just like. You but know, it doesn't feel like my life down is the road. Gone, it really doesn't feel like my life has gone down like that because the yeah. internal environment of a person has nothing to do with the uh, what it's they true. look like to other people. Yeah. Like my internal in- environment is that I feel like what I hear other people describe them, whether they're a woman or a black man or whatever, I identify with that feeling of not fitting in because that's just a state of being that is totally independent of whatever supposed gifts you have. Mm -hmm. The great fucking lie in our society right now is that there is 
look, there are privileged people. They're, but they're not privileged because of like genetically so much how they're born, but where they're born, who they're born related to, what kind of money is involved, all that kind of shit. Because I, I grew up feeling just naturally like other, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, like and, we're saying. Well, and yeah, I'm not saying yeah, like where it's... Lost my- you know, that got oh. to be a little bit of a... Oh, I'm sorry. I, but no, I, no, it's I my mean, fault. This it's is a not, loaded... And I, and I don't mean, like, that's who you are. I just mean, like, I know that people see you differently. Like, I know that I... One of... Just a small... A low-level frustration with me. People talk to me as though I'm younger than I am. People talk to me as though I am less experienced than I am. Um, like, I am stupider than I am. I In stand-up, I... This is gross this could sound vain i had to start i had to stop wearing makeup start wearing frumpy clothes start putting my hair in a ponytail because it completely changed how people not how i who i was inside but what they were coming at me with and what Mm -hmm. they would allow who they would allow me to be Mm -hmm. and so that's all that's all i mean that like that's yeah i I mean that just touched a well i wouldn't call it a nerve but like i hear that like a fair amount that you know i'm just as afraid as you are Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm making those same choices because I'm letting, you know, people edit me at a certain point in my life. And, you know, I've been on this like trajectory of saying, you know what, wait a minute, fuck that. I can't help it if me standing next to you makes you feel insecure. I don't mean you, but people I encounter on a on a daily basis, I'm not doing shit to them but my mm-hmm. job, right? I'm there, I'm doing my job. And they're having a response to me that they're trying to make my fault. Oh, you don't talk to people right, Curtis. You know, you don't do this, that. And I'm like, this is me. Like, I've done enough work to know this is just me. I'm an mm-hmm. educated guy. I got a big vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to fuck with you. Well, I think I that, that just, you know? just the like being aware of it thing is the, is, is what's important. And not that you should modify your behavior at all, but I think that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people who are in are in similar situations for other reasons, and they're just not even aware that oh well, I'm like I have a friend who's just super duper tall, and he's always like, people people act like I'm so like they they treat me so weird, and I'm like that's because you're just a foot taller than that person you mm-hmm. just talked to, and it's such a minor thing, but you. But how much you let your identity and what motivates you and everything be how you're being received by the audience of humans. That gets to be, you know, basically the insanity of codependency. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't, like, let it rule your behavior, but just... You you know, Jimmy Henderson, I live in a room full of mirrors. Mm -hmm. Uh, All I can see is me. And distorted funhouse mirrors, you know, because I'm relying on other people with imperfect perceptions to tell me who I am. And they're bringing all their own shit to it. So the real thing to be mindful of to me is what's your fucking motivation? Like, Mm -hmm. why are you doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. If I honestly can say that I'm doing what I'm doing to be of service, like... I'm, you're paying me to be here at this job. I'm going to do everything in my power to accomplish what this business is here for. I don't give a shit what else is happening. There's no way I can go wrong. I can't worry about that guy that's got an axe to grind against me. He'll be gone because he's not focused on the job. He's focused on me. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and that seems to be the sweet spot for me because I go crazy be trying to please people that just are bitter and have a problem with shit. You know, and I'm not, I'm not, I want to be able to hold my head up high and say, look, I'm the way I was, uh, the Lord made me, mm-hmm. you know, I got to be proud of yeah. who I am. Like, am I supposed to like tread lightly everywhere I go because I'm a six foot four white man with blonde hair and blue eyes? I, well, Fuck and that. again, I was not saying any of those things as like, no, those are like, ah, but just like those, those to me seem like good things. Right, right. 
but they don't feel like that to me because the people that I always like identified with and wanted to be friends with and wanted to be close to wouldn't let me close to them because they thought I was a bag the bad guy. Hmm. You know, I was the I was somehow a yuppie or, or a rich kid or a preppy hmm. kid, and, and, and you know, you know where I grew up, but mm-hmm. you know, I was you were always very nice to me. I was always very excited when I would see you at the Kremlis Christmas party because oh, you were we mostly yeah, because mm-hmm. you would actually talk to me and and interact with me, and most of the everybody else was boring. So. Well, I'm kind of I'm glad that we're talking now because I kind of like I feel like you. Well, you know, maybe it's just you weren't neither of us were totally relevant to each other until we, you know, my interest has now intersected with yours. But it's kind of cool that there is this other continuum, because even if I didn't know you from Churchill, I would want to talk to you because you keep popping up. And I have seen your Twitter stuff and I've seen your sketches and um, there's oh, and I there was a podcast taught sex stories, I think, that my friend there's something I can't remember um you were, yeah. There's something about like humorous sex stories or I've horror. I've done a lot of storytelling podcasts, probably. Well, you're popping into my. I mean, it isn't because we know each other from Churchill that you've been popping into my feed, basically. Well, you know, you, know, you talk a lot about uh, the the Richmond curse and everyone mm-hmm. ending up back here, mm-hmm. um, which I will not do. I'll just visit. I hope. Um, but uh, but I think but it, the version of that that I see is that. Richmonders, and I think even more so Churchill people, they, I, the people that I interacted with here growing up, I was like, they're crazy. No way. I am totally different from that person. And now I always find myself so drawn to those people. And so like, oh, I, I understand mm-hmm. you better than so many of these people that have gone right. out in the world and met. So um, try. Yeah, it right. kind of is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I attributed a lot of it to that, to that otherness, the, the like being in between different, like we're not quite Southern, we're not quite not, mm-hmm. we're not quite a big city, but we're not, we're definitely not the suburbs. Right. We're, we're in between a lot of different things. We had very specific experiences here. But we really, you know, this, the city it needs to stop seeing itself just like the little kid that's looking at the cool kids. We have a distinct identity, all our own. And Richmond I think it's is really valuable. It, it is it is its own thing. And it's I'm really glad that it's never gotten over this or gotten over that because it's kept its identity like right or wrong, it's big it's remained distinct in this way because it's sort of stubbornly you know, it doesn't want to give up this to have that. It doesn't want to kowtow, it doesn't want to like mm-hmm. or it can't. You know, and I begin to love that dysfunction because it has created something very authentic yeah. to me. And the curse for me is L.A. and New York because I feel like when I go there, I'm trying really hard to go and be in the place, the only place where I can exist. You know, that's mm-hmm. how I was thinking about New York when I went there. Like, there aren't enough people like me in Richmond. I just can't function in this place. I need to be in New York where people like me are. And then I realized, well, that actually sucks when there's so many people like me in one place. Because what being like me meant to me was really competitive, um, fickle people that would, you know, were fair weather friends and were really after one specific goal and really made friends in order to further that goal and like call it networking, but it's really a lot of bullshit and manipulation. Mm -hmm. And, the best time I had in New York was when I just dropped out of even playing in that, and I was just a guy that went to work 
and I went to my Dominican gym and I got my bagel at this bodega and I was just a New Yorker. I rode my mm-hmm. bike in Central Park on the weekends and, and you made your own little community. Yeah, and I wasn't rubbing elbows. I mean, I still you can't help but rub elbows, but I wasn't church, you know, searching for that mm-hmm. getting behind the velvet ropes thing that I've talked about before, like being in that society, getting behind the curtain of Oz because mm-hmm. that is where the great and powerful create the illusion of smoke and mirrors with the big fucking head and yeah i feel that 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 has has been what's held me back a lot is my inability to just uh i don't know navigate all of that handshaking and stuff i'm i'm good at making friends one of the one of the other big lessons i had to learn was being okay with talking about myself and selling myself, which felt so gross to me. Mm-hmm. The first time I did a show in LA, that same trip, um, I afterwards, that friend who had <laughs> yelled at me was like, I'm going to take you outside and you're going to meet all these agents and managers and network people that we've invited to this show and you're going to talk to them. I know you want to hide backstage, but mm-hmm. you can't. We're going to push you out there. And I was like, okay. So they did. And I was the person outside who was like, so who has cats and who has dogs? Anyone <laughs> like candy? Boy, this weather is sure neat. Just like, because in my mind, if I'm just a good person that people want to be around, then they'll want to be around me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But sadly, part of your job as a performer is to, to sell. sell yourself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was looking around and seeing all these other guys saying, well, here's what I'm working on. This is what I did last. Da, 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 da. This is what I want to do next. And I realized, oh, shit. These people just thought I was a crazy person. All mm-hmm. the people I talked to were like, I mean, it would be like if you walked into a coffee shop and the person did that to you instead of saying, what kind of coffee do you want? Mm-hmm. Here's your coffee. Right. It was just like, hey, who likes cats or dogs? You'd be like, this is a fucking crazy barista. Right. So. And I don't like it when they don't just give me my coffee and <laughs> talk about all this other shit. Yeah. So so it's, it's a it was a difficult thing to learn to balance and to be okay with and be like, that's just like getting a business card printed. But here's the thing that's crazy. About, okay. Selling yourself and like, but you don't want to sell yourself, you know, sell my skill. Yeah. Sell my and you comedy, sell, and especially, but not sell my soul. Yeah. Right. And you want to sell your persona, Oof. you know, and you want to sell a brand, which you, I mean, you've got a couple of different fronts going with that. So you, you, you want to sell the Eliza Skinner stand up. And you want to sell Eliza Skinner writer, mm-hmm. and but neither one of those things are completely yourself. They are skills, and they are things that you bring. No, but they can feel a fuckload more personal than me sell, going over and working at Restaurant Depot, you know, so that I can have the money to do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's a lot more than just having your name on a name tag. It's mm-hmm. having your entire brain on a right. name tag, basically. I had a visceral reaction to, uh, I, I auditioned for, there were a couple, I had meetings on a few different reality shows, uh, for a while there, they were really working to try to put together a reality show about female comics. Mm -hmm. And, um, I met with a few people and with one, I, I, I was like, oh, they sound like they've got a good thing going. They said they wanted to be like a female Louie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with like really gritty and just following these four um, uh, women and seeing what it's like for them to do comedy and the rest mm-hmm. of their lives and all that. 
And then they had a, they shot a little pilot or a pilot presentation and it was a shit show. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to get us all drunk and they're trying to make us pick pick fights and Mm -hmm. yell Mm -hmm. at each other. And Mm -hmm. uh, the people that they cabin in the woods. It was (laughs) off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when they, and, and these, all these women were fighting so hard for it. They were ready to just Heisman each other for mm-hmm. this supposed prize that sounded horrible as we were going or felt horrible as we were going right. through it. There was one point where um, one of the girls was like, I have a game we can play. Let's play Say What You Don't Like About the Person to Your Left. And I was like, that's not a game. And then a producer mm-hmm. came out later after I was like, I'm not going to do that. Producer came out and was like, hey, guys, can we go back to that game you wanted to play? Wow. Can we play that? And I was like, I'm not going to do that. So at the end of the night when I walked out, um, they they did a little exit interview and they were like, so how was it tonight? And I was like, terrible. Mm-hmm. Oh no, actually I was like, uh, it was great. It was great. And they were like, what? <laughs> well, did you like the other girls? And I was like, yep. And they were like, did you feel supported at the table? And I was like, sure. And they were like, what's the worst part about hanging out with other female comics? And I was like, I'm not going to do this. And I took my mic off and they were like, what? And I'm like, I'm not going to do this. This is other female comics are my best friends. Mm-hmm. They're my favorite people to hang out with. This is all bullshit. Yeah. I'm not right for this. This isn't right for me. And, but I, but just that feeling of these women being so ready to give their themselves, their souls be like, I don't care what I'm famous for. Just make this famous, this mm-hmm. body, mm-hmm. make it famous for something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want that at all. Right. I want my comedy to get out to a larger audience. I want to have the, the, the comfortable life that I want to have, but I don't need my, you know, ugh, like my, my spine taken out and put on a TV show, mm-hmm. which is what that felt like. Anyway, huge digression. Sorry. No, that wasn't a digression. <laughs> that was gold. Oh, I like okay. that shit. <laughs> and the thing that I was thinking about, I was actually 100% engrossed and absorbed in what you were saying, <laughs> uh, but I was also thinking about why... I mean, usually the what people say, women who are co- comedians say, well, people don't think women are funny. Mm-hmm. And I, it's in this conversation when I reacted to you specifically voicing you as a woman voicing something that like was a touched a nerve to me. Like suddenly you weren't, you know, you weren't Liza. Like I was taking, you know, I, for a minute there I got into just, you know, railing against something <laughs> bigger. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that what what men really don't like about women comics is you know being laughed the idea that women are laughing at them you Mm -hmm. know that we can't take being mocked you know it it makes us i mean especially like get sex into it and our you know virility or potency or our Mm -hmm. adequacy you know almost all women getting laughs is like somehow an echo chamber of like being you know confronted with the power, the de- erection-destroying power. Yeah, there's some yeah. St- statistic or study or something that, that um, found that what uh, men are most scared of on a date, I think this is like with online dating, what men are most scared of on a first date is being that the woman's going to laugh at them, mm-hmm. it's being laughed at. And what the woman is most scared of is being murdered. <laughs> so Hey, they're both... <laughs> So I know it doesn't seem like that. <laughs> I mean, because really, it is not the same thing. <laughs> no. At all. But it is what it... That's narcissistic, fucking, egotistical men, which I have some experience with being. Mm-hmm. Being laughed at and being put down is is akin to being murdered because your fucking delusional sense of self is being, you know... Well, and I think that it's also... that's Those are... Those are probably the same kind of men who uh, do murder people. Well, <laughs> probably, <laughs> um, but who Sorry. are not able to be 
friends with women right. and who think, well, men and women can't be friends. It's always sexual because part of what friendship is, is knocking your status down and up is your friend right. is someone who can make fun of you and then make you feel better and then make fun of you and make you feel better. Right. Like not in a, like a cruel way, but in a, we're safe with each other no matter who's st- no matter what our status is. I'm not here because you're my boss and I'm not here because uh, you're so shitty it makes me feel better or <laughs> whatever. It's we bring each other up and down. But I think I mean people have a wide range of comfort with that even with their friends and it's not men or women it's where your fucking ego is at and how invested you are in what you think you're who you are and what you think you're putting out there and I mean cuz a lot of people can't take that shit from their even their friends. But that's you know? what that is like being made fun of is is your status getting knocked down right. a little bit? And there's a and lot so of people. So if you feel psych- like I can't have my status knocked down, and I especially can't have it knocked down by a woman, well then you're not going to be able to be friends with one. I think it's worth, but it's status makes it seem like it's really um, superficial. It's worse than status. It's identity. It's like it's people's fragile, delusional <laughs> sense of self, like that is so you know fragile. Like I just said, that it, it it's a, a psychotic desire to defend that. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, when I say status, I think I'm using I am using it like as an That's aspect of identity. It's mm-hmm. an improv thing where we talk Sorry, about you know. I yeah, I know. It's ner- it's a real nerd shit. Mm-hmm. Um, that like you know um, you can have a uh, a boss and a secretary. And you assume that the boss has the status and the secretary is lower status. But sometimes you've got a boss who's lower status than their secretary. And that's a different type of relationship. So it's not necessarily about like societal status. It's about like... Who's wearing the pants? Kind of. A little. Power. It's about yeah, it's Influence. a little about power. It's about yeah, uh, confidence. Sometimes it's just about confidence, um, and who whose confidence is shaken by who and why, and you know. Well, it's taken. I mean, without getting going the route the comedians go, it's taken a lot of intentional work for me to be able to take a certain amount of that from people that are close to me, mm-hmm. because I was probably borderline psychotic, narcissistic. <laughs> you know, not in the way that. Um, would make me a murderer. It just made me maladjusted, <laughs> you know, to life. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, it took a lot of, okay, this is good for me. It's like medicine. Okay. This mm-hmm. is good for me for people to take me down a few pegs to, you know, whatever, this is really what I need, you know, but it took like really like, you know, the way you swallow like some disgusting medicine or that you would, you know, go through painful surgery <laughs> or whatever. And, um, I have to say like, I mean, that's my problem. With, I, I, there are plenty of female comedians that I recognize are funny, but my initial discomfort when Sarah Silverman gets up there is she's going to mock me personally. <laughs> like she's going to look. She's right. going to call you out by name. Yeah. And make fun of there's, you. There's a vague sense that like she's is threatening. That, is that sort of your your take on humor and, and I'm just in being general? Really on, yes. And in, in fact, it's probably because I got made fun of so much as a kid. Yeah. So I like I don't like being made fun of but then there are even when there's you know there are a lot of situations that comedians are still making fun of themselves but they remind me of something that isn't it's not liberating to be reminded of the fact that i'm 43 and you know i may become incontinent like louis (laughs) ck so that's that's next Mm -hmm. you know and sometimes that you know it's not escapist enough for entertainment it's a little too um 
even yeah, when it's well, I funny. Mean, <laughs> I don't want to watch Steel Magnolias every day because that right. would tear me apart, but I just do love that movie. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that you need different things at different times. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you're a little too fragile for comedy or for that type of comedy. Taking, yeah, you're just a little too That's sensitive. Okay. That's okay. Little, watch yeah. some cartoons. <laughs> Star Trek, you know, yeah, Spider-Man. you know, throw on some Law & Order for me. It's always... Law and Order. I do like Law and Order. That's your your escapist yeah, cathartic go-to. Yeah, seeing a, a torn up body at the end. Yeah, well, time. it's all it's for me. It's the familiarity of the um the the Format. pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. that I know what's gonna happen, and now this, and then now here's the twist. Ah, it's all done. Like that's very satisfying to me. I just re- realized something that. A, we are, we've gotten really tantric here. Where <laughs> it, this has been long, but I was supposed to be somewhere at 8, and it's Yikes. Yeah. This was long. Well, and I'm really psyched to where it went. And <laughs> I, we got into some good stuff, and I would I, I would like to know more about your career, and I guess I'm just going to have to... Google it. Yeah, or we can uh, talk sometime. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Sometime. What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're mm-hmm. the coolest guy in the neighborhood, sure. That's right. I'm I'm the I'm one of the, the older cool kids. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> you need my a- affirmation. I do. So I need your approval. <laughs> you were so psyched when I asked you to be on this, weren't you? It's like <laughs> now you got you made it. Yeah. Woo. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that was a, a long one, and I uh, could have talked a lot longer, but I was late as shit for a second Thanksgiving dinner, and I got in a little bit of trouble for that and for that I am sorry and you know I'm sorry right baby um so I've moved into my new house in Churchill and we moved into some you know a place that some guys have been living for a while and it was a little fucked up and the two of us have been cleaning it and insulating it and I'm really psyched to have a whole house uh to myself and well not to myself for myself and Minobia. Um, mi novia y mi, mi limpia mucho, mucho. Um, anyway, um, I don't have, as I've pointed out before, I don't have enough furniture to fill this place up. Um, I could really use some. I'm looking for a corner cupboard, a pie safe, a couch, a nice couch, you know, something, you know, clean lines, maybe vinyl, maybe a little mid-century modern, perhaps, you know. Um, or just some cash. It's been a long time since anybody uh, kicked me any ducats in the uh, donation thing. And, you know, there were some of you that were doing that. And I, I haven't really been soliciting it other than on here. But it would be really helpful, you know. And uh, But maybe this is your, your way of saying that you don't give a fuck about this podcast. But if you do give a fuck about this podcast and you like what I'm doing, enjoy what I'm doing, I'm doing it for you, believe it or not. Um, then perhaps you can go on my donate page and support this thing I'm trying to do to celebrate the independent spirits, people of this town. Because motherfuckers in Richmond who are from Richmond, who are expatriates, all of that, they're as good as better than anybody else out there in the fucking world. And uh, their stories should be told. So, speaking of stories, the end.